Um, it's gonna be a little hard to get through today. I'm so sorry. But um, uh, we're going through our Heart of Worship series today. Um, and uh, as we've been going through it, our worship series has been refueling our love for Jesus and um, really reframing worship as a love for Jesus um, and just seeing what our rhythms look like. How does that um, grow, our worship and our, our love for Jesus? Um, and so today we're gonna be talking about how our worship and how it shapes our witness. Um, as you know, um, just the vision of our church uh, that I was just so, so encouraged um, as our elders have processed this and continuing to process this, continue to pray for the elders as we process to see how, what this actually looks like for our hope body. Um, you know, to follow Jesus into loving God and loving others does not necessarily lead to being lights of the world. And um, just as Jake had laid out that we can easily fall if we are not careful in an imbalance. We can fall into a holy huddle if we just focus on uh, loving others or we can get into Lone Ranger mode um, when we so focus our intimacy with God that we forget about the world that we live in. And yet, by following Jesus and following Jesus into loving others, that's gonna lead us at the same time by doing that, that we are called and we are lights to the world. And it was so clear, um, just what the scripture says and what Jesus said said, that they'll know we are Christians by our love. And so, but what does the world look look at us? What do they look at when they see the church? I don't need to go through the whole list of how, how oftentimes when they see, when people see the church, they see, they don't see any time between worship and witness. They only see a disconnect. And surprisingly, the most pressing area that Paul said next as an example of God working in us and working out our salvation to be a witness to the world is not with the greatest apologetics. It's not gonna be with the greatest evangelistic strategies. It's not gonna be in the most perfectly crafted gospel presentation. Um, but what it has to do with is being an authentic reflection of biblical Christianity. And Paul's first imperative or command here was to stop grumbling. Look with me in verses 14 and 15. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so what we see here is Paul is saying, this, he's almost uh, coming, the first thing that comes out of his mouth, uh, that the first way that you can be a witness to the world is to stop your grumbling, stop your fighting. And before we think through that, we gotta stop and say, who here can actually do that, right? As Alec Montier said, he said, the opening words of verse 14 comes like a shock of cold on a hot day which we get a lot of that in Houston, don't we? As easy as a church or just as a parent or just as a, um, just as a, a regular working person, it is so easy to complain. You might complain about the traffic and how long it takes you to get through the beltway or to get through the loop. 
At church, we can complain that the preaching is too long, or we can complain that the preaching is too short. You know, we can complain about the AC, that the AC is too cold, or that the AC is not um, on. And yet a complaining Christian is an oxymoron. Yet how often as we, as church members, the champions of complaining? We should be wanting to dry up the market of complaining. And the church is called to be set apart from the culture, and especially in this area, in grumbling, that we look no different than the world. Well, why does Paul press into, out of all things, grumbling? He says this because your grumbling is not inconsequential. Your complaints are directly tied to your identity in Christ. It's tied to your own salvation. If you look at verses 12 and 13, he starts off with saying, Therefore, my beloved, as you've also obeyed so much, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so he's making a, an explicit tie. He's saying, you are, is God working in your salvation and working outward in your salvation? It should show up in the way that you use your words. And look at verse, the last part of verse 14. It says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and a depraved generation or a twisted generation. The Philippian believers were meant to be a pure and uncontaminated children of God, but they were acting like selfish, spoiled children. And their complaints threatened to contaminate their purity as a church. In the same way, watch out that your complaints are not a threat to your church's purity. To the Philippians, this must have struck a nerve. It, when Paul confronted them using the words grumbling, it's almost like he's throwing back to the most famous grumblers in the Bible, the nation of Israel, as they journeyed to the promised land. The only other place that Paul uses this here is actually in 1 Corinthians 10.10, where he uses the word complain. And here he's warning the Corinthians, and he's going back all the way back to Israel's history, and he's going back to that episode where Israel, about two millennia ago, uh, they were God's people. They were called to be a witness to the world by their purity. About two millennia earlier, God had rescued Israel from slavery. They had cried out to the Lord um, for rescue, and God answered them, and he sent a deliverer named Moses, and he delivered um, by signs and wonders uh, the nation of Israel under the subjugation and the oppression of Egypt. And as they went out on a mass exodus to escape from Egypt, Pharaoh had a change of heart and he sent out an army after them. And we know this because God drowned the mighty Egyptian army while the, uh, while the, the Israelites walked safely to the other side. See, God promised them that they will be his people and to provide them a place, a promised land that they can call home. And so if you, you were in the people of God, you would know that he was on your side. If you knew that, what will you complain about? When they journeyed through the desert, they began to get heat in the form of trials. They were not able to find food. And so that's when they started crying out to Moses, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you brought us here into the desert to starve us to death. At that point, the people forgot they were the children of God. 
They forgot who they were. They began to be discontent in their hearts and they started longing for their life back in Egypt. If only I was back in the land of good and plenty when I was just getting my belly fed. Hey, it was a terrible time. But this led to a lot of murmuring and complaining about their leader. But tragically, to complain about God's appointed leader in Moses was to complain about God's God himself. And this led to God God's anger burning against this complaining generation. Deuteronomy 32.5 forever records them with this ominous pronouncement. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul is saying, Philippians, don't complain. Otherwise, you're gonna be like Israel. You'll be a warped and crooked generation, but you are already children of God. So work out your issues. Work out your identity and don't forget it. Don't resort to grumbling or disputing. Grumbling here is like a deep guttural word. It's like a low murmuring, a low muttering when people are disgruntled. You might hear that from your kids um, every time you give them oatmeal instead of cereal or uh, you know, have them do yard work in the middle of 100 degree weather, um, <laughs> kind of like my kids. And it also describes the Pharisees and the scribes in which they begin grumbling at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the word for disputing gives this sense of an inner reasoning that has ulterior motives. This led even to some of their top leaders in this church in Philippi, Yodia and Syntyche, to start contending with each other and start fighting with one another. And that was damaging to the church. Um... You know, it's, it just so, it's so easy for, to forget that we are children of God. And, you know, whenever you listen to, you know, my three and my six-year-olds complaining, um, I was just having this conversation with Caleb, um, and I was asking him how things were going, and, um, and he was just saying, you know, I, it's just so tough when you have, when I have my brothers just calling to me and saying, Gaga, that's the word for brother. He's always like, they're always asking him to build things for him. And then, and then when they built it or when he builds it for them, they want something else. And so they keep on asking, you know, and so they keep on asking and asking, uh, Caleb, can you do this? Caleb, can you do that? And they start breaking it up right when they do that. And it's just like a constant thing. And so, you know, Caleb was, I had a good conversation with him about, you know, just how to, res how to resolve complaining. Now, in the same way, I think we as children of God um, can get caught up with the world. And I think that can lead to us being, becoming, if we're not careful, being discontent with God. When we are not secure in our identity with God, and when our heart naturally lusts for other things, our own agendas, our self-interest, our, our self-entitlement, well, if you only look at things my way, which leads to a, for, um, a feeling of moral superiority. Oh, I'm more spiritual than them. I know what's better. They need to see things my way. And this can lead to grumbling when people don't live up to your expectations, which leads to disputing. Now, to be clear here, I'm not saying I think that the Lord has really gifted hope with so many people who are just willing to surrender all of us, really, just have just a gracious and forbearing spirit. I think 
the Lord has really graced us um, so much. But I think Paul is emphasizing this. When things are good or when things are not so good, who are you? Do you remember who you are in Christ? And if you remember who you are as a child of God, then your heart will not lead out of pride, but it will lead out of humility. You'll care so much, not so much about your own personal needs, but as the scripture says in Philippians 2, that you'll count others more important than yourself. And instead of fighting for what we want, then our hearts will be attuned to Jesus. What do you want for the church? What do you want God for our body? And that is such a joy that I can see that at Hope. That's what our desire is, is to be. We want to be a church that wants to follow Jesus. And yet, Paul's reminding us, don't forget the privilege of being a child of God. Man, you were dead. You were enslaved to your own passions, to your own desires. You were coming under the wrath of God. Yet, Jesus Christ, he did not leave. He did not um, you know, resort to a power play, but he humbled himself, he emptied himself, and he drank the cup of wrath for you and for me, for our sin debt. He nailed the sin that we all have committed against him on the cross so that after the third day, he rose again and he invites every single man, woman, and child to come in and rest in his grace alone and rest in our identity as being children of God so that we can be made alive in Christ and act as children of God. Wow. What a joy. And when we're ever tempted to complain, we need to ask ourselves, man, am I just worried about something or am I wowed by the fact that I am a child of God? And I think below the surface, I think God just wants us to take a good, long look at our hearts. Has your heart been resorting to thankfulness or has it been resorting to complaining? Has it led to pride or a feeling of superiority? Has it led to a grumbling and uh, a negative view toward others that has caused issues against other church members, grievances against the church? You know, and that's, you know, honestly, we're all on this road together. I can't you know, imagine, you know, any of us who have never, ever just struggled with this. And so one of the things that I'm learning um, is that, you know, that I would be able to, before I do anything, that I would suspect myself. I'm a sinner, and I got to suspect first my own heart. Secondly, I would inspect my own heart and ask questions, deep uh, questions, and asking myself, Lord, is this my sin heart issue? Is this an issue of my own motives? What am I really after? What is my goal here? Is my motive, is it love, right? I mean, at 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about that you could be a clanging symbol um, and you can do, you can give yourself up, your body to be burned. You can be the greatest Christian of all time, but if you have no love, then it, then it means nothing. God, what is my motive? And then thirdly, 
I concentrate after I suspect myself, inspect myself, and then um, I give my own heart a heart check and just going back to the gospel. Am I more welled by the gospel now that I have maybe inspected and seen and examined any sin in my life? And have I taken that to the Lord Jesus? Have I said, man, I have put you to the cross. Lord, my sin has nailed you to be crucified. And it was for my sin that you died. And even recently, the Lord just brought to mind, as I was just kind of rehearsing, going through these, it brought to mind something that I realized that I needed not to complain about, but work out my own issues with the Lord. And so that's just my heart for us all. My first thing is to look at, look at my own heart. I don't deserve an ounce of God's grace, yet Jesus Christ, he, out of his love and lavish love for me, he bought me by his blood. That should just wow us. That should just bring humility. That should just bring unstoppable worship. It should just bring the type of humility that Philippians 2, 5 says. And then after that, it should bring thankfulness. As William Ward said, quote, he said, God gave you the gift of 86,400 seconds today. Have you used one to say thank you? Thankfulness is is a soil in which pride cannot easily grow. And so people see so many bickering and fighting and arguing. It's just so hard. And we get enough of that in the world. And yet, at the same time, God is challenging us to be a church in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So church, work out your issues. Work out your issues by being wowed that you are a child of God. And Paul gives another controlling reason to work out our issues. Take a look at verses 15 through 16. Um, it says that you are children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The The first thing is this, work out your own issues. And the second thing is this, work out your witness as a church. Um, Why? So because... Paul's concern was how the church shone in a dark world. Specifically, he was concerned about the church's witness in the city of Philippi. And the church was to live holy lives in the midst of their generation in which, in their culture, it was all about uh, worshiping man and not God. They were bowing down to the emperor. They were people-pleasing, and they were trying to please man rather than God And yet, Paul's concern here was that the Philippians were to shine as lights in the darkness throughout their worship. And I love this imagery here. Um, I love to look up in the sky, and whenever you do look up in the sky, depending on where you are, not necessarily here in Houston, um, uh, or maybe just down your street, but if you go to a very unpopulated area, uh, maybe you go to uh, Big Bend, or you go to Brazos, or some other national park, you're gonna see, you're gonna look up, and you're gonna see lights, And it's not going to be like city lights, it's going to be stars. And you'll see so many stars that I know it just, just one look at it just wows me. And these these stars are just light years away, right? Lights, a light year is just, it travels at 186,000 miles per second. And so, so a star 
that is one light year, light year away is about six trillion miles. And the highest, or the brightest star, Sirius, if you ever went out and stargazed, it's 8.6 years, light years away, which is actually about, you do the math, right? Eight times six, or 48 trillion miles. That's staggering. I can't even fathom that, right? But yet, its light still illuminates the darkness. In other words, stars don't blend in. In the same way, Christians should not blend in. And I think Paul's plea here is this. When you really go down to it, is there a real big difference between you and also somebody who does not follow Jesus currently? Like, do you you shine like stars in a dark place? Is there tension between your worldview on morality and the world's? Um, In a world that glorifies self-indulgence and uh, are you glorying in self-denial? When we are tempted to be boastful about ourselves and just talk about ourselves, are you humble and wanting to hear more from others rather than boasting about yourself? When sin happens, is that something that we glory in and laugh about? Or is it something that offends us, that grieves us? For those who are not following Jesus, is that something that should just make us pause and ask the Lord for opportunities and um, for ways to be able to share the hope that we have in Christ in a way with them. You know, maybe your life doesn't seem much different from the average non-Christian. And yeah, you might worship Jesus on Sundays and you may listen to more Christian music than secular and perhaps you care for uh, maybe the homeless and the poor occasionally. But really, in reality, the Lord is just asking us, is your life that different? Does Christ and his lordship cause tension to your place in the world or does your life look no different than an unbeliever? And so Paul's message here is that as you're getting spiritually fit, you will stop fitting in to the world. You will become more and more um, different from the world. You'll feel you may be even more uncomfortable from the world, but it's not a encouragement for us to detach completely from the world, but to live in the world as his witness, just like a star that shines in the midst of a dark place. So how do we shine like stars in our world? Number one, we see that from the text, holding fast to the word of life, verse 16, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or, uh, or labor in vain. And this command has two aspects. First of all, your life. Live a life of moral purity, right? And, and in, this, in this context, I think he's saying, when you conduct yourselves in the church, may your interest not be on yourselves, but be on the interest of others. Stop fighting, right? Stop grumbling and trying to find anything to pick at, but really go back to your identity as children of God, and that's going to lend credibility to your message, as D.A. Carson writes, in other, world, in other words, <laughs> um, Christian contentment stands out in a selfish, whining, self-pitying world. As Christians hold out the word of life, there must be no trace of self-pity, but a life characterized by sincere gratitude and godly praise.
In other words, there's a connection between our worship and our witness. And I've said it before, the greatest witness that you have is in the, maybe in the way that you care for others and love on others. And maybe in the most depressing and discouraging trial that you might find yourself in, that you may be tempted to complain and it's all right to be honest and to process, but in the way that you handle it, that may be the greatest apologetic that the world needs to hear. That in the face of struggle, that you're not responding in a way that's like the world's, but you're responding in faith, in love, and in purity. Gratefulness, when bad things happen, will cause people to stand up and really take a listen. It has taken um, root, and one of the guys that I've been working out with, and, um, um, and uh, this guy is such a joy and a blessing um, because he's a believer, and he's handling all this stuff that is being thrown at him with such grace and gratitude. And so it's really causing something in him to stir up. And so don't, don't uh, you know, look down on your witness. And so Paul ends off here on a personal note. This was not a dry exhortation. Um, and again, I just really would love for you to see Paul's love here. Look at verse 16b through 18. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul does not want to run for nothing. Paul is picturing here a daily burnt offering, offering in which um, back in the Israelite times before Jesus came, the priest would offer these, these offerings um, on top of the animal sacrifices in order for God's wrath to be appeased and for their sins to be atoned. And so Paul is picturing a priest pouring out a drink offering on top of the burning sacrifice of the goat or the lamb or whatever it would be. But he's not picturing himself as the sacrifice here. Instead, it's the faith of the Philippians. It's the Philippians working out of their faith which we see in this text that Paul uses the same word here as a drink offering and the sacrificial offering of your faith to describe their financial offering, to describe the sense that they gave their all so that Paul's ministry would continue to advance the gospel. And so Paul is meaning that the outworking of their faith and their service that produced the gift. And Paul was that drink offering that was poured out on top, which was secondary to the animal sacrifice. But when the main offering was burnt and he would pour out the drink offering, what would happen is that the altar was so hot, the burning sacrifice, that the wine would just disappear in a puff of steam. And Paul was saying that even if my life was like wine that disappears in a puff of steam that nobody ever hears the name of Paul, even if I suffer or I die, the priority is that salvation. Your salvation will be worked out completely. And I don't want to die for nothing. I want to see your work, your faith worked out in full. That your hearts, Philippians, would be so in love with Christ. You'd be so in love with the gospel that you are pouring out your lives in love offerings to others. And that through that love, you are an offering to the world. 
Paul's greatest joy was just self-denial for Christ and his church. And Paul, Paul poured out his life for the church. And that just humbles me. He was discouraged. He could have been discouraged. He, in this time, he was in house arrest. But four times here, look at your text in your scriptures. Four times he says a word that results in joy. I am glad and rejoice. Likewise, you shall be glad and rejoice with me. He was a joyful man because he had a joyful God. And his life was poured out so that even if his life was a wisp of steam, that he said, my life hasn't been in vain. And that's our, our question here today. We're not called to be a cool or relevant church. We're called to be a church that would make much of Jesus by being a pure, blameless church, one who would work out our issues in a in a spirit of humility, and also as we work it out, that we will be able to work out our witness to the world by the way that we love one another so that we can love God, love others, and shine as lights in the midst of a crooked generation. And Paul was gonna ask us, and I think he asked us this question, Hope Church, is this your desire? Do you want to be poured out in such a way that your life is worship to God, that your worship is spent in making his name famous and making Jesus um, the priority and getting, giving him the glory due to his name. Will he say to us at the end of the day, Hope Church, you were my church. You struggled. You went through times of transition and struggle, pain, but you were poured out as a drink offering. And you were so pleasing to me. As a prayer team comes up, I just really would love for us to just spend some time in prayer. Um, and uh, feel free to sit, feel free to stand, whatever you wanna do, we'll have prayer. Our prayer team come up as usual. We just continue to ask that uh, a man pray with man and a woman pray with a woman. Um, but um, really spend some time just asking the Lord, what, what is your chief joy? Is your chief joy in your identity in Christ? And are you moved to grumbling or gratitude? Even in, let him inspect your heart of any grumbling, anything that might be um, in your heart. And then secondly, pray for your life to shine like a light. So let's go ahead and pray. As we close this time, and we just wanna worship you, God. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that our worship ties into our witness. Lord, help us. God, if there's any sin in our own hearts, that we would confess it. Father, we also pray that your spirit would be with Hope Church. Father, we want our lives and our Hope Church body to be a witness for this world not just to bring more people, but Lord, just to bring them to a closer walk with you, Jesus, to show that you are the living water and the river of life. And you are the God who satisfies all of our yearnings and our desires. So God, do whatever you want to do in this space. Pray this in Jesus' name.